Open your Bible with me, if you would, to Matthew 27. If I haven't had the privilege to meet you, my name is Kendall Age. I serve as the lead pastor here, and it's good to open God's Word with you as we continue our series entitled A King Like No Other. And uh, if you've been with us a while, and you could have been with us a while, and you would have only ever been here in the book of Matthew, we're almost done. We're getting right near to the end. Well, if you were to walk out into a field in the middle of Missouri, outside the little town of Hartville, you might find a small stone monument in the middle of nowhere. And you would find yourself at the population center of the United States. They do this every, every time they take a census. So this is the population center as of the 2020 census. They, they you know, figure out who lives where all over the country and then do some kind of weighted average to figure out where does the average person live, the center of the population. And for over 100 years, it's been moving southwest, right? You can imagine 100 years ago, the population was heavily tilted towards the northeast part of the U.S., but over time, it keeps moving southwest. You would find yourself outside of Hartville, Missouri, the, the center of the population of the United States, and that's ironic because, like, nobody lives there. <laughs> There's less than 600 people in the town. I think they have a stoplight, and that's it, but it is the center of the great people that live from coast to coast in our country. This morning, we come to kind of the population center of the Bible, the center point. Now, it's not the geographic center. Like, there's actually more Bible that's already come before than is coming after. But it is, it is the center when it comes to the teaching of this book, the, the focal point, the theological center, the nucleus of the Bible is right here, this passage, this morning. What we're looking at is the middle. And now the, the population center of the U.S., it, it moves every, with every census because people move, you know. This center doesn't move. This has been fixed for 2,000 years, and it will be fixed through eternity. The Word of God revealed in a particular way in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We're actually picking up in the middle of that telling. If you were with us last time, we got through the middle. This week, we're going to pick up in verse 45 of Matthew 27 and read through the death of Christ. So follow along with me. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, 
the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were, who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to behold in your word what you have for us this morning. Lord, in some ways, these passages, these verses are very familiar. I pray, Lord, that you would keep us from over-familiarity and help us to stand at awe, in awe at what you're doing here. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So we pick up at noon. The sixth hour of the day is noon, and, and we are told that it was dark from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. That's three hours long. So it was dark from noon to three. Let us suggest that that is an unusual time to be dark. How many of you remember the eclipse from a few years back? Yeah? Okay. Total eclipse, right? And a lot of folks walked outside and bought those little cheap, but hopefully not too cheap, glasses where you could look at the eclipse and you could see the sun going behind the moon. And it was dark for what? Three minutes? Four minutes? Five minutes? Whatever, whatever's happening here was no eclipse. Eclipses are measured in minutes of darkness. This was three hours. And then I, I actually needed a commentator to tell me this. I'm sure one of you could explain it to me. But eclipses can't happen at a full moon. And the Passover is always at a full moon. So there is no way that this was an eclipse. It's funny that I would even start talking about these kinds of things, but we tend to look for natural reasons for supernatural things, even in the Bible. It's interesting, though, Matthew doesn't seem to get into why this is happening, because to Matthew, it's rather obvious why this is happening, because Jesus is dying. That's why the sky went dark. To the Jewish mind and to those familiar with their Old Testament, you are familiar with the fact that darkness was often a symbol of judgment. I mean, that just kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Like when things are dark, it feels more like judgment. But think back to the Israelites in Egypt, right? And right before God sent the last and final plague on Egypt, he sent one before that which was a plague of darkness. And it was a warning and a foretelling and a picture. Judgment's here. Judgment is here. Judgment is happening. The judgment of God is being poured out and the earth itself is giving testimony to that fearful reality. See, Matthew's job right now as the author of this 
his goal. And God's goal as the divine author of this is not just to tell us what happened. He is telling us what happened, but he's telling us why it happened. And we see first this picture of judgment. And then we get to verse 46, which of all verses in the scriptures, certainly it would be near the top of those we must approach with reverence, with kind of a bowed head and humble heart because of what we see here. This is that Moses moment. Take your shoes off for you're standing on holy ground. Here Jesus gives a glimpse into his own heart, into his own soul, so that we wouldn't just see the externals of what's happening, but he actually opens up to us that we can see something of what is going on inside. And I say, see something of it, and I'm going to explain it, but we ought not feel that we're about to get our arms around it, as though somehow by reading this, we're going to understand the totality of what the Son of God walked through. But it says that about the ninth hour, that is three o'clock in the afternoon, we're now in the last few minutes of his life, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. This wasn't quiet. He cries out. He cries out with strength, and he's crying out in anguish. He's crying out in pain. What does he cry out? What's the source of his anguish and of his pain. He speaks not of physical torment, though he is living it. He speaks not of the shame heaped upon him by his enemies, and they had piled it high. No, he speaks of something deeper and far more terrible. He opens the window to his soul, to the true agony that he is experiencing, and that agony is being forsaken by God that he is cut off from God. We, we talked this morning in Sunday school, if you, if you weren't here, we talked about that eternal life is knowing God. Christ is being cut off from that. This is the truest sense of death and damnation, to be alienated and forcibly isolated from God. If you were to kind of survey throughout the book of Matthew when Jesus speaks of God, he speaks always of his Father. And he encourages us to speak our Father who art in heaven. But here, he doesn't. He cries out, my God, my God. That fatherly component is missing in this moment. God is still there. Creator God, holy God, powerful God, God the righteous judge. And yet, Jesus still speaks of my God, my God. His devotion to God is intact even while the relationship is parted. May his people give him thanks. Well, we skip down just a few verses to what Jesus said immediately after that as we get to the end 
where he dies. In verse 50, it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now, we can read this, and everybody here understands that this is the verse that says that Jesus dies, but it's, it doesn't just say Jesus dies. It, it says some things. It says that he cried out again with a loud voice. He is vigorous and awake and in control of himself in this moment, and that is unusual. People did not die like this on crosses. The cross was hours and hours of agony that slowly took your life away. You fade away on a cross with a loss of blood and a loss of strength and a loss of breath and often then a loss of consciousness before the end. And here it is twice Right before the end, Jesus crying out with a loud voice. He is fully present. He is in control of himself with his mind and his voice and his faculties. And right then, he dies. And Matthew's language says he yielded up his spirit. Luke says it somewhat differently when he, he actually tells us what Jesus said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now we have to understand, of course, Jesus truly died in this moment. But we are not to understand that somehow death defeated Jesus in this moment. He, in this moment, gave himself to God, yielded his spirit to God. Death didn't kind of wear him out and he was finally done. No, it was finished, and that's why it was done. He knew he had finished the work that God had called him to. He had finished the mission. He had borne the wrath of God, and so he yielded up his spirit to God. So, it is an unfortunate paragraph insertion in verse 51. I understand why they do it, because it seems as though we're starting a new idea where Matthew says, and behold, the curtain of the temple. But we miss something really important in this way. So first, let's get our arms around and behold. Behold is what we all think of as a Bible word. It's a little Bible-y, right? And behold. Okay, well, that means I'm reading the Bible because nobody talks that way, right? <laughs> So why do we, what, what is this? What is this word that's here? This is Matthew saying, if you weren't paying attention, pay attention right here. Look right here. Check this out. Don't lose track to what's going on. This is amazing. I want you to see this. All right? So, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And check this out. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That sounds a little different, I think. And I think that's how it's supposed to sound. We're supposed to connect these things and to marvel at the timing of this particular event. Now, let's notice two things about this, this curtain being torn. And the first is that this isn't just some everyday curtain, right? I'm not talking about a shower curtain 
or a window curtain or some everyday. This was a curtain unlike any other curtain. The historian Josephus tells us about the curtain that hung up between where people could be outside the temple and the inside of the temple. And he said it was 55 cubits high. And you're probably a little rusty on your cubits. So I'll go to feet and say that is 80 feet high. And, and you might have a hard time visualizing 80 feet. So I'll go to stories and say that is a seven-story building. So take your house and figure it out, right? That's a lot of stories. That's how tall this curtain is. And it stood between people and their God. A holy God on the inside of the curtain, sinful man on the outside of the curtain, and no way through. This has separated man from God ever since the, the temple and indeed the tabernacle had first come. So the first thing we want to notice is what curtain is torn, but the next thing we want to notice is the direction from which it's torn, because it's torn from top to bottom. Now, you might be able to imagine tearing it from bottom to top. Let's get, let's get everybody on this half of the room, on this side of the, the curtain, and we're all going to pull. Everybody on this side of the room, we're going to get on this side of the per curtain, and we're going to pull. And if we pull strong enough, and who knows, it's a pretty impressive curtain, maybe we could get it to begin tearing from bottom to top. Friend, that's not what happened. It tore from top to bottom because God stepped in and did it. God stepped. It was not man that through his efforts or ideas or schemes or plans finally figured out a way to God. It wasn't the collective effort of everybody in the room pulling at this thing and saying, we got this, let's do this. It wasn't through building that Tower of Babel back in the day to get to God. There was no human effort that could have torn this curtain, this barrier between God and man. We were hopelessly cut off and hopelessly outside, and then God reached down and tore that curtain from top to bottom, himself opening the way so that we may come in. Here's some good news this morning, friends. The way to Christ is open. The way to God is open. The way to him is open because God has opened it. How did God open it? In the death of Christ. In the, forgive me, rending of Christ. There was the rending of the temple curtain as well. Behold, check this out. He yielded up his spirit and the curtain was torn by God. Here's the thing, if man tears the curtain, man might decide to repair the curtain, put it back together. If God tears the curtain, what man will put it back together? If God opens the door, who will shut it? If God says, all may enter through Jesus Christ, none can stop them. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And there's no demon in hell that can stop that from happening because God himself opened the curtain. So let me ask you this morning, have you turned to God? 
Listen, this is good news for those who are aware that they don't deserve God. Because that whole curtain was there because we don't deserve God. We're all sinners stuck on the outside. All of us. Not like good people on the inside. All people stuck on the outside away from God. But God himself tore the curtain. You need do nothing. You need not clean yourself up. You can't tear the curtain yourself. You can't make your way to God. All you need do is look to God. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Forgive my sins. Receive me. The way to God is open through Christ. This is wonderful news, friend. If you've not responded to that news, let me encourage you to respond to that news. This is, this is news for all the world. You've heard it before. But this is news for you this morning. For you. This morning. If you but turn to Christ, you will find suddenly and amazingly the curtain that has kept you from God evaporates. And you will know him. And check this out. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And... The earth shook and the rocks were split. There was an earthquake. The earth itself bearing witness in the moment of Christ's death to the level that even the rocks were split in two. I've not quite heard of an earthquake like that. Maybe Hollywood where they have these chasms open up in the ground. But the earth, it's the, the, the rocks itself splitting in two in the open field. Now the the Old Testament often uses earthquakes as a picture of, to mix the metaphor together here, of earth-shaking events. So if, if a kingdom falls, it will be spoken of in advance in the prophecies as an earthquake. If, if, one, if one empire displaces another, and this, the whole way of life of one empire collapses in place of another that's spoken of as an earthquake. And here we have not a prophecy of an earthquake, but the real thing actually happening and testifying to what is actually going on in the death of Christ. The earthquake is prophetic. It's instructive. It is saying that, that the entire way of approaching God for the people of God the religious system that had been established in Judaism, the temple and all its rituals, the religious leaders, the fact that you, for the most part, had to be of the right ethnicity to be in the people of God, all of that was shaken and split apart in the death of Christ. The old being reduced to rubble that something new could be built. Verse 52 the tombs also were opened. I, I didn't see that coming. What? All right, so that's a big earthquake, and that's kind of not where I want to be during an earthquake. It's wherever the tombs are, that they get opened. And many bodies, this is not getting better, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So we were, we were at the moment of Christ's death. There's this earthquake, splits the rocks, I get that, 
opens the tombs. Whoa, okay. And then all of a sudden, people are coming out of the tombs. Kind of all of a sudden and kind of confusing because we're, we know we're at the moment of Christ's death, but then it says many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city. So I'm a bit confused as to the timing. Like it sounds like they were raised when Christ died and kind of chilled out at the tombs for a couple days. And then when Jesus rose again, walked on into Jerusalem. I don't think Matthew's point is necessarily to give us the clear timeline on this as much as it is to focus on the reality that this new life that the saints of old were experiencing was connected, intimately connected, to the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's connected to both, right? Nobody, nobody's rising up out of their graves without the death of Christ, and yet... It's also through the resurrection of Christ. He's the, he's the firstborn from the dead, as it's called. So it's, it's both of these. And Matthew ties it together, I think, with some de deliberately not making everything clear as to how this happened, though that would have been quite a day, I think. That's not what you wake up thinking about, you know? wonder if people are going to get up out of the graves today, walk around, you know? I mean, that was, that was a day. So we live in Spotsylvania County, and uh, you know we're surrounded by battlefields, just surrounded, right? And if you've been here at the right time of year, you've been able to watch as some thousand, I don't know, thousand people dress in gray, and another thousand people or more dress in blue, and line up on opposite sides of the field right across the street with muskets in hand and officers on horseback, and they do a reenactment of what happened back then. It's quite a thing to see. If you haven't seen it, it's quite a thing to see, to see the reenactment of old battles. Do you know what's happening here with these people getting out of the tomb? It's a pre-enactment. It's a pre-enactment. It's a pre-enactment of the day of resurrection. There is a day coming when everyone who's died in Christ will rise up out of their graves. That day is certain. That day is bought and paid for by the death of Christ. And Christ, having died, will not fail to show up on that day and call his people up out of the grave. And on that day, when he actually died, it was as though a little bit of power accidentally kind of snuck out and some folks just woke up early. Is it time? No, you're a, you're a little early. Sorry, buddy. That had to have been some bad news. You got to go back to sleep, man. Sorry, we don't get into that here, but that was rough. <laughs> but here was, in the death of Christ, the power of God breaking into a dying world. You know, there's a dying world. This, praise God, there are hints of grace, common grace in this world. There are things we enjoy. Praise God. But friends, this is this is dying world. Don't fix your hope on this world. Don't fix your hope in this life. Broken bodies that we have, scars that you carry from things that you've walked through, 
We limp along in our weaknesses, the curse of sin on the ground around us, and the allure of sin in the hearts within us. Every promise that this world makes, eventually it breaks. You build something, and over time, it will be destroyed. You gather something, and over time, it will be scattered. You get healthy, and over time, you'll get sick. You repair something, it'll break again. The grass withers, the flowers fade. And in the death of Christ, this dying world shook. It shook. And the old way of a hopeless world, of a hopelessness of getting to God, of a hopelessness under sin and in bondage to sin and in a world of sin, all of that shook and resurrection life poured out, poured out from the cross before Jesus had even gotten out of the grave himself. Resurrection power began to flow and suddenly there was hope in the world. It's good to have hope in a dying world. And I want you to see who the hope is for, because the hope is for everyone. Verse, verses 54 and down to the end, 55 and 56, give us two groups of people. One is Gentile soldiers, the other is Jewish women. And neither of them has been at the forefront of the book of Matthew until right here. It is not the people of God, the Jewish people, that see Christ die and stand back and say, oh, we've made a mistake. This is the Son of God. No. It is the first fruits of the Gentiles being brought in. Right there at the foot of the cross. These are not just any Gentiles. These are the soldiers that had just mocked him. If you were here last week. These were the ones who had had the fake coronation for Jesus. Had spit upon him and beaten him. And now they stand at the foot of the cross and say, Wait a minute. We were wrong. All of this was wrong. He was right. He is the Son of God. And so the first thing we see, we see these pictures throughout of resurrection power, and then we see it actually taking root in the Gentiles. Praise God. Praise God that, that the people of God are now made up of those from every tribe and tongue, people and nation. And then we see many women there as well. The, the spotlight shifts from the Gentile soldiers over to the disciples, those who had followed Jesus throughout the book. But strangely, we were unaware of that. We thought this was a guy's club of people that had followed Jesus throughout the book. But it says they had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. And all of a sudden, in the death of Christ, this gender difference is obliterated. The fact is there were two groups kept out of the temple. Gentiles couldn't come in, and nor could Jewish women. And in the death of Christ, all the curtains are torn. Everyone's invited in immediately. And, and Matthew shifts his spotlight right to them right away to show that this message is for all. It is for everyone. There's no one outside of the reach of the story of the gospel. There's no, one, there's no one too far away that God can't reach them through this. Resurrection power is kind of strong. You know, there was, no, there was no body in the ground that, you know, for one moment, I, I think that body wasn't doing much. 
unable to do much at all. And then one moment, it was unable to stay on the ground. Woo! Time to get up. Let's go. That is, the, that is a picture of the power of the gospel going forward throughout the world. Church, preach the gospel to your neighbors. Tell your kids about Jesus over and over and over. This is powerful, life-changing, hope-giving stuff. We've got the only hope in the world. Every other hope fades and fails. Only this one remains. Let us speak of Christ to those around us that they too can shift their hope and put their hope on the, the resurrected king, the one who brings, even in his death, the power of resurrection. So let's speak of Jesus and in conclusion, let's keep our hope in Jesus too. It's easy for us to drift. It's easy for us to look elsewhere. It's easy for us to forget the resurrection hope that we have. It's easy for us to listen to the promises of this world, friends, here at the center of our Bibles. The nucleus of the atom. Here is our hope. Let us fix our hope here. Let us rekindle and renew and remember that our hope is nowhere else but in Jesus. And he is enough. Amen. Amen. Worship team, come on up. That we can sing to King Jesus. Father, I ask that you would grant us supernatural ability, the gift of your Holy Spirit poured out right now in two ways. One, if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you, that you would knock on their heart's door, that you would draw them to yourself. And two, Lord, for, for those of us that are walking this long road, still in this dying world with hope in you, oh, bring that hope to full light, that it would blaze within us that we would follow you joyfully and gladly and wholeheartedly for our good and also for your glory. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.